Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome to another hour of Provocative Enlightenment, an hour dedicated to the discovery of illumination. Indeed, we go wherever mind might take us during this next hour, all the while aware and questioning the nature of life, of being human, of logic and reason. This is an hour focused on the real philosophy behind the meaning of our values in existence and how we derive the assumptions that we live by. It's an hour where we admit that our foregone conclusions could be all wrong and in that way truly open ourselves up to the possibility of a new kind of understanding that in some way, somehow, may indeed lead to that elusive state known as enlightenment. There are those that believe enlightenment is the result of a brighter flashlight, believe it or not. The idea of a spiritual awakening or an encounter with the ineffable experience is described by Plotinus or just a so-called metaphysical epiphany that suggests maybe a prime mover or a grand organizing designer or some intelligence to the universe or the notion that the individual personal consciousness survives the graves. These ideas are the rubric of superstition to an ever-growing audience. To me, the most discouraging aspect of this trend is that it's capturing an even larger percentage of our young. In many of our universities today, spirituality and religion are accorded no more or no less respect than expressed by Freud when he flatly asserted that religion is a sugar-coated neurotic crutch. And yet, with a new intensity that seems to fuel various new ideologies such as objectivism, which holds that reality exists independent of consciousness, that individual persons are in direct contact with this reality through sensory perception, that human beings can gain objective knowledge from perception through the process of concept formation and inductive and deductive logic, that the proper moral purpose of one's life is the pursuit of one's own happiness or rational self-interest, and that the role of art in human life is to transform man's widest metaphysical ideas by selectively reproduction, by selective reproduction, I'm sorry, of reality into a physical form that can be comprehended and to which we can respond emotionally. Now, what does all that mean? In other words, let's transform the human understanding into a dressed-up form of atheism, competing in life for self-purpose only. Perhaps you remember a few weeks ago when Neil Donald Walsh and I disagreed over the idea of cultural relativism, a notion that insists right is defined by the culture. Socrates was just sadly mistaken, according to Walsh, for there's no absolute virtue of any kind, um, according to this philosophy. Ideas of this nature threaten the fabric of our society, in my opinion, and fail to provide any consolation whatsoever for the sacrifice. It may provide for a feel-good notion that allows some to define and pursue anything as okay if it suits them, but that's, that's its only end. There are some truly exceptional leaders today that take exception to these philosophies. There are leading scientists that are unafraid to use their intellects, education, and tools to both expose the siloistic nature of those that insist in a Nietzschean way God is dead, and to shed light on the true nature of consciousness in the universe we find ourselves inhabiting. It is this juxtaposition that we seek to analyze, to ponder, to search through, to vigorously hold up to the proverbial light of day with an eye on the pragmatic and the object, and, and an objective of gaining clarity. 
Each week, we try to bring you the best experts in the various fields who can illuminate this question regarding consciousness and what it means to be human. Today's guest is just that, the very best in his field. But before I get to our distinguished guest, a couple of points of business to our letters. We only have time for a couple of short ones today because I don't want to take anything away from our guest. Not a minute. Our guest last week was Diane Archangel, and we discussed her pioneering research with 16,500 documented encounters with those that had passed over. Many of you wrote both of us about the show. Diane, however, wrote me saying this about all of you, quote, I sure like your audience, Selden. A number of them emailed after the show, most describing their encounters, but all were very kind. I'm becoming quite a fan of Hay House. Thank you again. Love, blessings, and wishes for a wonderful holiday season. Well, that's thank you to everybody out there. Christine wrote Hay House with this to say about our show. Eldon stands out as as unique, and his guests are like him. Interesting, nice addition to your roster of experts. Well, thank you, Christine. Thank you for writing Hay House. Cindy wrote regarding the free MP3 programs that I've told you all about. You can get them at eldentaylor.com. Just click on that left-hand navigation button that says free. I love the products, commitment, and generosity Eldon Taylor gives to the planet. Well, thank you, Cindy. We, we do our part. Kay wrote, you're a unique voice on Hay House Radio, sometimes edgy, but I love it. Keep it up. Edgy. Uh, okay. Do you mean by that, I hope, that we provoke some real thinking? At least I hope that's what you mean by edgy. Uh, thank you, all of you, for your letters and support. Remember, you can opine by leaving your comments on eldentaylor.com. Okay. I know what I think about all this so-called self-interest stuff. What do you think? What are your ideas and questions? We want your input. Call us toll-free, 1-866-254-1579. And international callers can dial the country code, then 760-918-4300. Now, what does chaos, creativity, cosmic consciousness, morphic resonance, the greening of science and gods, the sense of being stared at, psychic pets, telepathy, dogmatic skepticism, media skeptics and a sort of pressure toward a scientific revolution what what do they all have in common simple the man that is our special guest today the eminent dr rupert sheldrake rupert sheldrake is a biologist and author of more than 75 scientific papers and nearly a dozen books a former research fellow of the royal society he studied natural sciences at cambridge university where he was a scholar of Clare College, took a double first-class honors degree, and was awarded the University Botany Prize. He then studied philosophy at Harvard University, where he was a Frank Knox Fellow, before returning to Cambridge, where he took a Ph.D. in biochemistry. He was a Fellow at Clare College, Cambridge University, where he carried out research on the development of plants and the aging of cells. At Clare College, he was also Director of Studies in Biochemistry and Cell Biology. He is one of my heroes, has been for over 20 years. I I marvel at his scholarship and his insight, and we're honored to have Dr. Rupert Sheldrake join us today. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Dr. Sheldrake. Thank you. Thank you, sir. To begin with, for our audience, your background is so diverse and your material is so rich, how would you define your life's work? I mean, is it something like in search of meaning or in search of consciousness? Or, or tell us, please, how would you define your body of work? Well, I'm a biologist, and 
What I'm trying to do is work towards the opening up of science, which is, as you know, in the grip of a kind of narrow materialism, especially biology. Um, and I'm hoping that science itself can break out of this narrow dogmatism to become broader, wider, uh, more affirming of life, uh, and lead us to a deeper understanding of nature and of ourselves. So that's really the underlying agenda of my work. And I think that when we drop this mechanistic dogmatism, um, then uh, as we recognize living nature and the nature of life, then a dialogue and a connection between the scientific and the spiritual realms becomes much more possible. So that's also part of my hope and aspiration. You, your material is, uh, I mean, I, I, uh, your first book, I think, was Presence of the Past. and uh, uh, Actually, A New Science of Life, the one that's just been reissued uh, under the title Morphic Resonance. Under Morphic Resonance. That was your first book. Okay. Yeah. I, I can remember reading uh, the, this entire notion of how um, Morphic Resonance, um, indeed, if I may, I, I read your work and I read uh, Richard Dawkins' work not far apart. And, of course, Dawkins talks about selfish means and selfish genes. And, and, and you're talking about a memory that is in the morphic resonance one one is uh vital and uh, and exciting and uh, it promises uh, um, a kind of intelligence uh, to the universe the other one is uh well it is just strictly uh i guess uh Dawkins is after all known as the king of atheism today devoid of all of that can you juxtapose those two for us uh just kind of quickly well, I think Richard Dawkins embodies the um, mechanistic dogma that uh, science is based on, which usually goes hand-in-hand hand with the dogmatic atheism. Um, and I think he shows the kind of tunnel vision and narrowness that um, is really bad for science and, you know, and bad for society as well, because I think it's, um, it's simply not true to the way nature is. Um, I think that what I'm trying to do is to show that living organisms are truly alive, that their inheritance is not just chemical in genes, uh, but also depends on what I call morphic resonance, a kind of collective memory within the species, and that evolution um, is a creative process that leads to new habits. Organisms have habits. Um, it's not driven by selfish genes. Um, organisms are whole things, whole, whole, whole living beings. Um, they inherit habits. They also inherit genes. Um, but um, the sort of ultra-competitive interpretation of evolution that Dawkins puts forward um, is, I think, a, a mistake, and it ignores all the cooperative aspects of nature. Indeed, I, I, I totally agree. In fact, I believe that in a recent debate that uh, I have heard that you had with him, you asked him about a body of data, new research, that he he essentially responded by saying he wasn't aware of it, and uh, and if he were aware of it, he wouldn't give it any credence, something of that nature. Is that more or less right? More or less, yes. We were talking about <laughs> telepathy, and, and he... Um, simply said he wasn't interested in discussing the evidence. And, um, and, that, and that is not what we think of as science, is it? Certainly not. No, this is, um, it reveals the, his strongly dogmatic nature. 
You know, in your work, you in, and of course it's very diverse. And I know our listening audience is really going to want to to get into things. Uh, some of your books, like dogs that know when their owners are coming home, and and this whole area of animals and animal telepathy, and and your seven experiments that can change the world. And 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 again, as I say, your material is so really so rich. But to to set the basis for this. You believe that habits are a part of our natural selection, that they evolve, but you also believe, if I understand correctly, that the laws of nature are evolving. Yes. Um, you see, the, the idea that one of the great revelations, really, of, of um, cosmology in the 20th century was the discovery of the Big Bang Theory, which became orthodox around 1965. Before that, most physicists thought the universe was eternal. Um, and in fact, it was gradually running down through the same law of thermodynamics that it would eventually all freeze up in a kind of cosmic heat death, a very gloomy picture. Um, but in 1965, the Big Bang Theory came in, and that shows that the whole universe started very small, less than the size of the head of a pin, and very hot. And it's been growing and expanding and developing ever since. In other words, we live in a radically evolutionary universe, and the evolution of life and of human beings is part of that bigger cosmic process. Um, and the traditional science was based on the, the idea all the laws of nature are fixed forever. Uh, but if we live in a radically evolving universe, the question arises, well, could the laws of nature evolve themselves? Um, and what I suggest is, yes, they are evolving, but law isn't a very good metaphor for nature. It's very anthropocentric based on an analogy with human laws. Um, and I think a better model is habit. And I think the universe has a kind of built-in memory. Um, the so-called laws of nature are more like habits. And evolution is a kind of interplay between habit and creativity. At all times in evolution, you've got a lot of habits. But new things happen. We know that creativity occurs throughout the evolutionary process and indeed throughout human history. Um, so there's this interplay of creativity and habit, which I think is the essence of the world we live in. Let me then ask this. Um, consciousness itself, uh, at least that part of consciousness that, that we, in a broad sense, define, that not just unique to the human being, but uh, maybe, you know, extends even further into the animal world and perhaps even further. I mean, is, but consciousness itself, is that an evolution and, and is it evolving as well? Well, I think that the, the forms of consciousness we have are evolving. I mean, human consciousness has, after all, evolved um, over thousands of years. And part of that evolution has been the discovery of technologies and um, art and music and so forth and language. Part of it has been the development of religions, because um, the great religions of the world have all evolved in the last uh, two or three thousand years. Um, part of it has been the evolution of science. Um, so I think human consciousness is evolving, um, but it may be that uh, the consciousness of other animals is evolving too, and I expect it is. Um, but we also have the question of whether there's a greater consciousness in the whole of nature or the entire universe, and whether that's evolving too. And personally, I think it is. I think that as the whole universe evolves, the mind of the universe or the soul of the universe must be 
evolving with it. Um, and so I think we live in a radically evolutionary universe where consciousness evolves as well. Now, that latter part of your answer anticipated uh, what my real question was. So if we were to see the universe uh, through the lens of some teleology, uh, some grand organizing designer, however we want to think of that, uh, singularity, if you will, uh, with an intelligence, um, in your view, uh, the entire cosmic sense of consciousness is evolving. Well, I think it must be, yes, because the whole cosmos is evolving. And if we think of divine consciousness as omniscient, um, you know, if then any view of any kind of consciousness within or beyond the universe uh, must be evolving with it, because um, new things happen in evolution. Um, if there's a mind that knows what's happening in the cosmos within the natural world and within the human world, then that must be developing too as these changes occur within it. So, uh, I, just from my own edification here, if, uh, if the cosmic consciousness is involving, uh, if there is a morphic resonance to the species consciousness as there is to the species, a resonance, if I understand you correctly, a morphic resonance that's different, say, for a Great Dane than it might be for uh, uh, an acorn, if if this is the instance, are are each of these kinds of consciousness in in your view, are they segments of the greater consciousness, the total consciousness? Uh, well, I mean, in a sense, they must be. I mean, everything in nature is part of the larger whole, um, and you know, our consciousness must be linked in some way to the larger consciousness within the universe. Right. Um, I think that when people have mystical experiences or, you know, through contemplation and moments of enlightenment and so on, I think that's when the human consciousness um, comes into contact with that larger consciousness. And after all, the only way we can know consciousness is through consciousness. So if there is a greater mind in the universe, we could only know it through our own direct experience. There's no other way we could know it. Which is totally subjective and, again, violates in some people's minds the entire idea of science. Well, yes, but, I mean, the thing is that science, if it's going to be an inclusive science, has to include consciousness. Consciousness is, by definition, subjective. But So if one says that science should be totally objective and take no notice of anything subjective, it would ignore consciousness altogether. And that's what much of 20th century science tried to do. Even academic psychology, which is, after all, the study of the mind, for decades, uh, people in universities pretended that consciousness either didn't exist or that it was irrelevant. Absolutely well, that's true. not very scientific. Um, the school of behaviorism tried to get rid of, by, uh, of consciousness from science. We have to admit that consciousness is... One of the things we know, without consciousness, we can't even do science. Science is a product of human consciousness. So um, there's no way that we can ignore it in science. And any inclusive science has to include and, and think about it. And in fact, one of the most exciting areas of contemporary science is precisely that, consciousness studies. 
Yes, it is. And, and, and you said that, I mean, that, that is, our entire listening audience can see right this minute why you are definitely one of my heroes. You say these things so perfectly. And the fact is, there is no way that you can conduct science. And science, for all intent and purposes, as Thales originally uh, would have had it, uh, cannot eliminate the study of uh, the human being, the subjective, and still ascertain anything analytical because it requires that subjective consciousness for there to be an analytical process. Now, with that said, you in your book, Dogs That Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home, and and I've got a lot of activity in the chat room about this one, uh, talk about uh, how animals do this and perhaps animal-to-animal telepathy, animal-to-human telepathy. Tell us uh, how you think this takes place. I think that um, all animals that live in social groups are obviously linked together. That's what a social group is. The the members of the group are bonded together. And um, flocks of birds, schools of fish are examples of animal groups. I think that these animal groups are linked through what I call a morphic field. It's a field that links together the parts within a larger whole. And when members of an animal group go away from the others, For example, when in a pack of wolves, the adults go hunting and leave the young behind in the den, um, the field of the group isn't broken, it stretches. So there's a kind of invisible connection between the separated members of the group. And that, I think, is the basis for telepathy. I think telepathy occurs naturally between uh, members of animal groups when they're separated and probably when they're together as well. Um, that it's a normal means of communication among animals, not paranormal, natural, not supernatural. And um, there's already evidence from studies of wolves in the wild that they communicate telepathically. There's a wonderful book about this by one of America's great naturalists, not much known today, but William Long, who wrote a book called How Animals Talk. It was recently reissued. it was been out of print since 1919, but it's the um, the best study there's ever been of um, telepathy in the wild. I've mainly concentrated on telepathy uh, in with domestic animals uh, with their owners, and large numbers of people who have dogs, cats, parrots, horses, and other animals um, have found that the animals seem to pick up their thoughts or intentions, um, and. When I first got interested in this from a scientific point of view, um, about 20 years ago, I found that there had been virtually no studies on this subject at all. Um, So I started by collecting stories from my family and friends and then from uh, a wider group of people through the media. And I now have over 5,000 case studies on a database, um, which shows that there are a, a lot of experiences people have that suggest their animals know what they're thinking. Um, the one that I've tested most is the ability of dogs to know when their owners are coming home. Many people who have dogs find that the dog anticipates the arrival of a member of the family by going and waiting at a door or a window while that person's on the way home. And um, the sceptical response to this is to say, oh, well, it's just coincidence or it's just routine, or they just hear the car engine, or something like that. Those may play a part. But um, I've done um, hundreds of 
controlled experiments where we have people come home at non-routine times. We film the dog the whole time they're out. Uh, Dr. Sheldrake, I'm going to have to hold you for a second because we're coming up on a hard break, and I don't want to hurry you through this because this is really important. Okay. Uh, so if you do, hang on there just for a minute. Our chat room's full, and we've got lots of callers. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment. My guest today is Dr. Rupert Sheldrake. You want to be sure and check out his work, especially his book, Morphic Resonance. Links to his uh, books, his website, etc. you can find at eldentaylor.com. Uh, be sure to stay with us through this break. When we come back... Uh, We'll pick up this conversation with how your pet knows when you're coming home and a whole lot more about consciousness. Stay tuned. Do you feel like you've become lost in a funhouse? Only seeing the reflection of yourself, past, future, and present, but unable to find the real you? I invite you to step through the doorway and onto the path leading to understanding of your mind, your choices, and the influences that surround you. Read Elton Taylor's New York Times best-selling book, Choices and Illusions. Now expanded, updated, and revised, it will provide you with real-life examples of how you can break free from your current perceptions and begin your journey to how high is up. Get your copy today from all bookstores or online from Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. We are all very aware of the power of belief, but are you aware that many times it is your inner beliefs that cause you to sabotage your own dreams and goals? Success is so much more likely when your inner beliefs are in line with your outer goals. And now, using Eldon Taylor's InnerTalk technology, you can do just this. InnerTalk is a patented subliminal technology and is the only such technology to be researched by numerous independent universities and institutions, including Stanford, and been demonstrated effective at priming your self-talk. There are hundreds of titles to choose from, ranging from weight loss to esteem, organized and efficient to prosperity and abundance, attracting the right love relationship to winning sports performance, accelerated learning to accelerated healing. Eldon Taylor's patented InnerTalk technology is your key to success. Check it out today. Visit www.intertalk.com. That's I-N-N-E-R-T-A-L-K.com. Intertalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome back. Now, if you just joined us, uh, my guest today is Dr. Rupert Sheldrake. We're discussing the body of his work. And just before we went to break, we were talking about uh, some of his experiments with how animals uh, share group consciousness with man, particularly how dogs know when their owners are coming home. So I, I'm going to turn it back over to you, Dr. Sheldrake, if you would. Uh, just before we went to break, you were explaining uh, how you conducted this research. Yes. Um, we found people who, lots of people have dogs that know when they're coming home. And I've worked with several people whose dogs did it quite reliably. We filmed the place the dog waited. We had the person go at least five miles away. They came back at random times. They didn't know in advance, communicated through a telephone pager. Um, They came back in unfamiliar vehicles like taxis, so there was no familiar car sound. No one at home knew when they were coming. 
and in many of the tests there were no people at home. And the question was, would the dog respond to their coming home um, under these conditions when there couldn't have been any normal clues or routines? And the answer is they did it, yes, they did it again and again. Um, and what's more, we found that the more sensitive dogs reacted when the person decided to come home before they'd even got into the vehicle. So this does really look like a, a form of telepathy. Um, there seemed to be no other explanation for it. And um, so I think this provides evidence. It's something that a lot of um, people who keep dogs and cats already know, that their animals can pick up their thoughts and intentions, even at a distance. Uh, but this uh, is scientific evidence that this is actually going on. And this evidence is summarized in my book, Dogs That Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home, and also published in peer-reviewed scientific journals. And if anyone's interested in the technical details, they're all on my website. Give us that website before we take callers. We've got some really patient people with some questions on the phone lines. I want to go to them next. Okay. So go ahead and give us that website. The website is www.sheldrake.com. That's S-H-E-L-D-R-A-K-E dot org, O-R-G, sheldrake.org. At your website, you also have some online experiments, right? That yes, our listening audience could participate that, in. Yes, that's right, where people can do experiments themselves at home, free, of course, with their friends, um, on the sense of being stared at on phototelepathy. Can you tell when someone's looking at your photo? and on um, a number of other phenomena. I also have an automated mobile telephone telepathy test, um, but unfortunately that only works in the UK, so only listeners in the UK will be able to do that one. But the other experiments work everywhere in the world, and they're on my website, sheldrake.org, at the online experiments portal. All right, let's, uh, let's take a caller. On line one, we have Maureen. Maureen, you're on the air with Dr. Rupert Sheldrake. Oh, yes. Hi, Dr. Sheldrake. This has been fascinating. Um, you know, since I uh, first gave my, my question, I think I've changed it a little bit. I hope that's okay with you. Well, fine. Uh, when, Just go ahead. Uh, when you talked about um, wolves in groups and stretching the uh, telepathy, you know, when the... the uh, the parents go out and hunt. Now, um, being a dog trainer and everything having uh, to do modifying behavior uh, with separation anxiety with uh, domestic dogs, you know, everything is respondent conditioning and also operant. Now, this, what you're talking about, the telepathy, it just is, is making me think about maybe handling um, cases differently with... Um, if the dog, I really don't know what my question is. Maybe you, <laughs> because I'm thinking if the dogs know uh, from your experiences and your experiments that when the dogs, uh, you know, know that when the owners are coming home, could there be something that we could do as owners to help animals with separation anxiety uh, to relieve that? Because if the intent of coming home sets off a chain of reaction or um, maybe you could just go from there. I'm, I'm really not understanding my question because this is something that uh, maybe we can have a different slant as a, a trainer to help these animals um, with se severe separation anxiety because the dogs are so bonded with us. I know Dr. Um, I was going to say Dr. Roger Brontes from, um, uh, from Denmark. He talks about the canine home alone program and um, how he would deal. Are you familiar with him? I'm not familiar with that. Um, okay. What I, I mean, 
dogs, of course, are social animals. They like being with people. And right, so that, it's yeah. not surprising that they get upset. But I agree, it's a big problem for some people. And it's a very big problem. I can't uh, even, I can't solve uh, separation anxiety. Miles, yes. Uh, no, well, the no. thing is that what I've found is that the dogs, it may make it worse for you than be, rather than better, but dogs can often pick up when people are going to go away or go out um, telepathically as well. Um, so because they can read their owners' minds, um, they can uh, quite often pick up when somebody's going to leave, and they often get anxious, so do cats. Um, they also pick up when they're coming home. I suppose that the only thing that might really help in this difficult situation is for the person when they're away to send the dog reassuring thoughts that they are coming back, because I suppose the worst thing for a dog is the fear that they may not return. Absolutely. I do tell people, you know, tell them when you'll be back. I know this sounds so hokey, but um, for mainstream, uh, but I do say, tell them when you're coming back, you know, make it calm. And But I think if uh, I could maybe study a little bit more of what you're talking about, a lot more of what you're talking about, maybe there's an answer to something that hasn't been revealed in the dog training um, community. Yes. Maureen, Dr. Sheldrake. Yes. I'm not a practical, I don't do this at a kind of practical level, but it would be fascinating if you can find a way of um, dealing better with this difficult problem. You know, Dr. Sheldrake, you, in, in your book, uh, you talk about horses, cats, and other animals, not just dogs. And, and because I love horses, I, you know, immediately gravitate to that. You cite an instance of a trainer who does indeed do what Maureen is asking, actually telepathically establishes communications with problem horses. And you, you cite a, a experiment where he finds his feed in, in one uh, feed bucket or the other bucket. Can you, you know, share that with us? Because that may be very helpful to Maureen with, exactly with what she's talking about. Well, it wasn't dealing with the anxiety problem. He was simply showing that the horse could pick up his intentions and read the thoughts in his mind. Now, I think that certainly applies to dogs as well. And here in Britain, the great classic doyen of dog trainers was uh, Barbara Woodhouse. I don't know if her books are known in America, but she was the woman who probably dominated the field here in Britain for years. And Barbara Woodhouse was a very practical, down-to-earth woman. And she simply took telepathy for granted. Um, and she says in her dog training books, if you want your animal to do something, it doesn't matter so much about the, the words you use, just form a clear picture in your mind, and that's what it will respond to. And she just took completely for granted uh, the importance of telepathy. Um, and so I think that a lot of people who've had practical experience with animals do this. Of course, it's not in the official training methods taught in universities because they're all based on mechanistic uh, science and telepathy is still a taboo topic within the scientific world. Dog trainers, on the other hand, are on an interface between the scientific world and the world where people have these close bonds with their animals um, and they're sort of in a slightly awkward position between these two worlds. But Barbara Woodhouse didn't bother about the academic world at all. She just got on with saying what she found worked and telepathy was part of it so if i if summarized and thank you for calling maureen if if uh an owner of an animal will spend just a few minutes in establishing an intention with that animal it can be very helpful in uh 
facilitating whatever it is that you're trying to do. Let's uh, let's take uh, line two, uh, Maria. I guess it, is that Maria? Yeah, Maria, you're on the air with Dr. Rupert Sheldrake. Oh, thank you so much for taking my call. Um, it's very interesting the topic, subject matter, because it it falls in within the telepathic uh, communication. I wanted to ask this question all the time, and here you come with your program. And not only that, yesterday I was prompted with an offer that I was thinking to go about, and it came basically out of nowhere. So my question is, since everything is energy, uh, when we put out a thought to communicate it to ourselves, for instance, the, the receivers or who are the receivers that pick up on that? Is it someone that needs to resonate to that, or it's simply... Um, the other way around, I attract them, and how how do you, um, what's your take on uh, constant uh, synchronicity of telepathic communication on, on the subject that it comes over and over? Well, that's one of the things I've looked at, and um, I've mainly studied telepathy in people in connection with uh, telephone calls. That's where it happens most uh, frequently where you think of somebody and then they ring and then you think say that's funny I was just thinking about you um, that kind of phenomenon is very common and about 80% of people have experienced it um, and I think what's going on there is first of all it happens principally between people who know each other well um, it rarely happens with strangers it nearly always happens between family members like mothers and daughters uh, between um, close colleagues, good friends, um, and people who have a bond with each other. It doesn't work so well with strangers. I've done tests where two callers have been familiar and two have been unfamiliar, and it works much, much better with the familiar ones. So I think partly it depends on the bond. Partly it depends on the direction of your thought or intention. When you call someone, you obviously have an intention to call them. Your mind, as it were, reaches out. Before you make the call, you, you form the intention to call them. And I think people pick up that intention. Just as a dog can pick up its owner's intention to go home and go and wait by the door, so a person can pick up your intention to call them. So they start thinking about you, then the call happens, and they say, that's funny, I was just thinking about you. So I think what's going on really is this picking up of intention. And in that case, your intention is directed towards the person you're trying to call. Um, and most cases of telepathy fall into that category. I've also looked at telepathy between mothers and babies. That's, again, a case where there's some very good examples of telepathy. A lot of mothers can pick up when their baby needs them. And um, they seem to be able to do that quite accurately. And I've done actual studies on this that show um, that a lot of mothers are very good at picking up their baby's needs. And not just babies, I mean children as they grow up, the mothers can often pick up their need from a distance. I think that in the course of evolution, this probably played a very important role. Before the invention of telephones, it was the only way a mother could find out if her child needed her when she was away from it. So I think that these things are very deeply rooted in not just human but animal nature as well. Okay, so very interesting. It, it, uh, we communicate uh, telepathically with those who we have something in common, more so than other strangers, for instance. Yes, yes, much more so. And 
I mean, it, occasionally it can happen with strangers, but it's normally uh, with people that you know well. And the great majority of cases, more than 90% of cases of telephone telepathy, occur between people who know each other very well. Yes, yes. Okay, thank you very thank much. Thank you for calling, Maria. Thank you. Dr. Sheldrake, are you familiar with the origin of consciousness and the breakdown of the bicameral mind by Julian James? Yes, and I thought it was a fascinating book. What you just said, of course, obviously reminded me of that because it was his, the premise of that entire book is that uh, for all intent and purposes, there was a period in, in our history uh, where most of our communication was telepathic. And that leads me to a question out of the chat room. That's my segue out of the chat room. Uh, and I'm not sure who this question is from. Uh, we are animals. We most therefore we must therefore be telepathic. How can we enhance our human to human telepathy? Well, I think that's a, a good question. I, I'm I'm not sure of the answer, but um, I think that the first thing we can do is pay attention to it. Um, a lot of people have these telepathic experiences, but then because we live in a skeptical, materialistic kind of society. Uh, people suppress them and say, oh, it must just be coincidence. They don't pay attention. Uh, so I think the first thing is to remove the blockages caused by um, this dismissive attitude, to pay more attention to them. Um, and I think then it's really a question of to, to pick up these telepathic impressions. Uh, it seems to work best when uh, people's minds aren't completely engaged with something. You have to be in a, a somewhat relaxed state for it to work. So another way of enhancing it is simply not to be in a kind of state of frenzied activity all the time and with one's mind chattering away all the time. And some people live in a world where they've got constant internal chatter and then bombarded with endless background TV or radio noises and stuff, which um, I think masks out these kinds of things. In our experiments, we tell people not to have the TV or the radio on because that seems to interfere. So I think really being in, in a relaxed state, um, being, uh, being attentive to one's feelings and uh, also learning from experience. You know, if you get an intuition, you think someone's going to ring you and they do ring, that tells you something about that feeling. If you have uh, thoughts about somebody and they don't ring and they, it turns out later they weren't thinking about you, then you can learn to distinguish between sort of random thoughts that are coming from chatter in your mind and feelings that are coming from you picking these things up. Uh, there are people who train intuition in, in others, and um, I haven't um, sort of found out exactly what goes on in these courses, I, um, but uh, I, there are plenty of people who claim it is possible to improve our intuition, and those are the most obvious things I can say about it. I, I, I'm going to, before we take our next caller, strongly suggest that, you know, everyone out there, there's a library of books by Dr. Rupert Sheldrake. And, uh, and if you're really fascinated and interested in the subject, you have to basically <laughs> read them all because each one builds on another one. And, and, but I, let's take a phone call here. Uh, line four, Angie from Ontario. You are on the line with Dr. Rupert Sheldrake. Hi, Dr. Sheldrake. How are you today? Hello. Um, I'm calling because I'm an animal communicator and, want, and I'm so happy you're on today. I wanted to ask, actually, because the experience for me when I'm listening to animals, 
um, is a receptive one where I just sit and wait for them to show me images. Mm. And I think my question is, how is it that when I'm seeing what they're showing me that I understand exactly sort of how to translate that into English? Like, sometimes I'll be sitting uh, with a horse and they'll be communicating to me about, uh, you know, a medical issue that they have. And I'm not really familiar with horses, so I have to try and describe it to their human. Um, mm. And I learn about what it is in the process, so I have to say, like, there's a binding thing going in and on in their side. Or, um, and I've learned so much from what they've taught me, but how is it that I know how to explain the process? Do you know what I'm saying? Well, yes. I mean, this is a, a really interesting question. I suppose part of it must come from experience. The more you work with animals, the more you learn about them. And so I suppose some of it's that. But um, exactly how it works, I don't know. I do think this is a special gift. I mean, most people can pick up the feelings um, of their own animals or pick up what's going on with their own animals, and their own animals can pick it up from them. Um, this ability to do it with animals that aren't necessarily very familiar uh, is a more specialized ability and a much rarer one. Oh. I think in traditional societies, it's something shamans did. Shamans were on the frontier between human beings and the animal world. And um, they were, the, as it were, the specialists at picking up things from the animal world. And in a sense, animal communicators have taken over that role in, in the modern world. And so somehow you've got this ability. I don't have that ability. I mean, I can pick up some things from animals, but uh, not in the same way that a, an experienced animal communicator like you can. Um, so, I mean, do you, do, well, perhaps you could tell me, do you, do you feel it mainly... Um, through feelings in your body? Is that how you, by, by a kind of resonance? Um, actually, no. For me, the way that it works is if I'm standing with a horse, if I get a call, oh, please come and see my horse, then I'll go out, stand with the horse, and I just let them, I just stay in that receptive state. When you say relax, mm. um, for me it's about um, I just, I, I relax, but I wait for them. I wait. And as I wait, they show me images, of either things that have happened or things that they want me to say. So they'll give me an age. If, if the horse is 11, for example, then all of a sudden I'll have this impulse to say what happened when they were nine, or they'll show me, like, their leg. So for me it's visual, and then I know when they were nine something happened to their leg. Mm. So, That's interesting. So, so you're picking it up in pictures. Yeah. Uh, and and then you're, you're, you yourself are translating it into words. Well, yeah, and that's why I think I'm, I'm wondering if you have an answer to that, because I've never had an answer to that. I don't really know. I, to do that, I'd have to talk to a lot of animal communicators and perhaps even set up some experiments, and that's something I haven't done. And I don't ah. know anyone else who's done it either. I think animal communicators right now are on their own. I mean, they can yeah. learn from each other. But I don't think science has got much light it can shed on this at, at, at present, largely because it simply hasn't been studied. That's amazing. Well, if you are ever interested in doing some um, work in the future, I would very much be interested in doing that. Thank you very much for that offer. Well, and Thank Angie, you. what you want to do is go to Dr. Sheldrake's website and take a look at some of the experiments that he has online and get yourself, you know, into his mail list. Thank you much today. Yes, oh, right. let me just, in relation to mailing list, I do have a mailing list on my website, and if anyone who goes to the website wants to be kept up, date, up to date with what I'm doing, they can sign on for that. I send out 
a little evening newsletter, not very often, about once every couple of months. But anyone who's interested in my work, um, it does keep them up to date with what I'm doing. That's great. Thank you very much today. Thanks for calling, Angie. Have a great day. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. We, uh, we've got roughly two minutes, uh, Dr. Sheldrake, and we still, I've got a number of other questions that I could feed to you and, and more callers, but we're just gonna, you know, we don't have the time to take that. So what I really want to do in this last couple of minutes is I'd like you to tell us, when it's all said and done, all your research, uh, everything that you've learned, the books that you've written, the sense of being stared at, the presence of the past, chaos, creativity, and cosmic consciousness, seven experiments that could change the world, your your animal book, what you know, how dogs know when you're coming home, and on and on and on, all of that. What does it say to you? And the bottom line is the meaning of all this. If you if you could summarize it, what does it mean to all of us? What does it mean to the average guy on the street? Well, I think it, first it means we live in a living world. Nature's alive. And it's a world which is a, a creative world. It's an evolving creative world. I think the creative spirit of God is part of that. It's the and it's I think the divine consciousness uh, fills the natural world. It's not nature or God is both. And I think we're connected with nature, interlinked with the natural world. Uh, many people feel that link, especially when they're out in the country with animals and plants. Uh, we're interlinked with each other. We're interconnected um, with members of our community and with all other human beings, um, with all the natural world, and with that consciousness that goes beyond uh, the human uh, and even the earth, the uh, consciousness that fills the whole universe. And I think that all these things are linked, and the more we recognize those links and connect with them, um, the more meaning we find in our lives, and probably the happier we'll be. Amen. Amen. Dr. Rupert Sheldrake, it's been wonderful to have you join us with our show today. I very much appreciate it. I want to remind all the listeners out there, uh, Dr. Sheldrake's books are available online. Um, most major bookstores. We've come to the end of another hour of provocative enlightenment. I want to thank you all for listening. Be sure and join me next week when my guest is Dr. Tom Campbell. We'll be discussing his book, uh, My Big Toe. Toe standing for the theory of everything. Uh, Tom is a NASA scientist, and he brings hard science to this in perspective as well. Uh, until then, as we say around here,